Tim Goldstein, autistic adult and your host for Life in a Neurotypical Universe, where we take a look at life from the perspective of an autistic adult. Today we have a very special episode of Life in the Neurotypical Universe. In this episode, I'm actually chatting with my friend Chris Turner from Project Enterprise Coaching down in Australia. And it was actually just a call that we had to catch up and talk with each other. But I decided I would tape it and record it because we usually talk about some pretty fun and interesting things. And out of this whole thing, I was able to produce three very high quality, very interesting podcasts. So come join Chris and I, take a look into life in a neurotypical universe. In addition to uh, autism, I have uh, hypomania. And I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, what, what the term, what the concept of hypomania is. It's... Yeah, well, hypo meaning less than, hyper meaning more than. A hypo, yeah, sorry, hypomania. yes. So when you take mania, of course, we understand mania is, you know, essentially going crazy. When I say crazy, uh, right. uh, the, the way my uh, original psychiatrist put it was, somebody who is manic will go out and buy 60 pairs of shoes. And now, obviously, that's pretty absurd. But somebody who's hypomanic will buy six pairs of shoes. Well, you can justify six. Well, you know, Tim does speak sometimes in stages. So we need some dress stuff, and he does wear brown, and he does wear blue. So I guess he needs a couple colors. And six, you can justify away. And mm-hmm. that's really what uh, what hypomania is: is uh, you're, you're essentially manic, except not at a level that gets you uh, put in jail or you know cause enough social problems that uh, you know you get in a car crash or whatever. You know, so the whole hypomania has been what always really was a driver. Uh, my my psychiatrist always referred to it as uh, it was the CEO disease, um, because most of his patients were CEOs that have hypomania, and it's what gives you the drive and ability to work eighteen hour days and just think that's like walk in the park, you know, to get by with four hours of sleep every night. And uh, so I, I've just gotten very used to uh, I just. It used to be uh, I had two careers simultaneously. I worked in IT during the day, and at night I ran my manufacturing company. And uh, I'd come home at one or two and have <laughs> and have dinner, and then uh, you know get up and go to work at nine a.m. So just uh, what, what can I say? You know, uh, there, there's advantages and disadvantages to all this stuff. True, absolutely. <laughs> so you you said about. Um, Autistic people being self-centered and not in that theory of mind piece and not being aware of the tribal allegiance. Do you think it's – because I wonder if there's a difference between like true being truly being self-centered like that ego in an egotistical way versus having an elevated priority on self and it's not a because I think there's that distinction between I'm going to look after myself over and above everyone else, 
as opposed to it's not that I'm dis- I'm not putting aside everybody else. It's just that if I'm not looking after myself first, then I'm not the best. I'm not setting myself up for success with or without them. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's is it? Do you think there is a? It's a me versus them thing, or is it just a? It's just a me thing, and and the others aren't even in the equation. I think the second one is the right one, and the first one is a, a neurotypical uh, analysis of watching the situation. And that's what often happens, is I, the analysis is that that yes. person is self-centered, they're egotistical, they're, you know, right. and they But for me, this is the way I, it works for me, and I, I put it this way just because it's kind of a fun way to put it, is it's not that I want to upset you and don't care about your emotions, Chris. It's just that they don't even come to mind to think about when I'm talking to you. Right. But it's, it's totally, it's, it's that second one. It's the, it's not, yeah, 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 it's yeah, that yeah. it's not even part of my thought process to consider your emotions. They don't, my emotions don't get into my thought process except, you know, through back, you know, kind of backdoor ways. I don't realize that they are. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and so it's it's kind of the, just an extension of that. If I can't even sense my own emotions and interpret them, how can I be concerned about yours? So I don't even worry about it because I can't read them. They don't. I can't follow them, so I don't even think about them. So that's really what yeah. it is. It's not that I'm I'm trying to be egotistical or self centered. It's simply a matter of in my mind the way my mind works and processes. Emotions isn't a part of what I process uh, very well. Now, I've talked to quite a number of women who are on the spectrum. We all know that women are underdiagnosed. And we're also finding out that they tend to express very, very differently than men do. And it's kind of interesting. As I've talked to more of them, there's a very common pattern amongst the way you know the women express. And one of the things that they all tell me is they can sense the emotional change in a room. So when something changes, you know, somebody does the wrong thing, whatever, and there's a shift. They can sense that, but they can't sense the buildup to it, nor can they figure out what they should do about it afterwards. It seems that the the women have, and maybe it's because of the way we socialize women. We socialize them to be groups and to care about each other. Us men, we we went off on the playground, we beat each other up, and we went on with it. So who knows whether it's socialization, whether it's uh, genetics, whether who knows why. But the answer they always tell me is, yeah, they can pick up and they can perceive a level of emotion, but they have no clue how to respond back with it. I think it goes all over the scale from, you know, me who doesn't even pay any attention, doesn't even pick it up at all, to I think there are people who are autistic that do sense it, but they don't know how to deal with it and process it to act the way a neurotypical would act in the situation, even though they know there's some way they should be acting different. It's um, because it's something I hear a bit is that, yeah, it's those thoughts along the lines of not caring, only worry about self. It's those sorts of <clears throat> sentiments that I think they get expressed, and I and I, I suspect a lot of the time that that's that's honestly not the case at all. And I think when you can put someone on a spot around it, there's a stuckness around being able to articulate why that's not truly the case, and then. Uh, the, uh, 
I think a lot of neurotypical people will look at it and go, well, your actions are inconsistent with your words, so I don't believe you. And it's kind of – but it's – I don't know that it's that black and white either. So. No, there's definitely a, a lot of uh, you know gray and blurring in there, which is very difficult for you know autistic people who tend to be very black and white. <laughs> kind of like to say that, uh, and I hate the term high functioning, but I, I'll use it in this instance. The difference between somebody who is considered not high functioning and high functioning is if you're not high functioning, you have on and off. That's it. <laughs> really mad or you're not mad at all when you get to be high functioning you have three states the i'm really mad i'm not mad at all and i have no clue but i'm somewhere in the middle (laughs) and you're trying to bump that up against though the neurotypical who has 10 gradations in their level of happy to angry how do you match when i have two or maybe you know if i'm really good i have three values how do you map your 10 to my three? And you say, well, let's take it to the simpler, the, the two, the binary of, you know, I only have two modes, it's on or it's off. Well, how do you map a range of one to 10 to somebody who has, it's on or off? So if you say something is a, this is important, you need to take care of it. I say that's an emergency. It's, it's, it's on the, you know, it's not on the everything's perfect side. So there's, got to be the it's a problem it's an emergency side when in reality maybe it was only a you know let's say that uh, as you get number higher they get worse so maybe it was only a a six yeah it's something concerning it's something has to be taken care of but it's not a fire alarm but to me there's absolutely no difference between the fire alarm and the six yeah yeah it is not that the yeah there's no nuance to it. Exactly. And, uh, you know, another way I describe it is if you just kind of, you know, hold your fingers up and make a circle in the air and, you know, it's, a, I don't know, about 18 inches or so, and say that all is where all human emotion fits in that circle. And if you're just sitting on the couch and chilled out and, you know, having a good time, you're, you're just kind of like dead set in the middle of, of it. I can notice when people get to about the 90% range of being at the outside of the circle, I can pick up on it. But yeah. if I am so deficient, I can't pick up on it till they're at 90%, what's my chance of recovering in that last 10% and getting the thing back on track? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, About <that's>... none. <laughs> I mean, they're so, far, right, they're so far off at that point that they're, you know, even somebody that was phenomenally good at it would be having a challenging time because they're already having an yeah. emotional reaction to what they ex- didn't expect as the feedback. Yes. And I guess that swings the other way around as well as, I guess, is like if you're, if you're the neurotypical manager with an employee who's feeling stressed, well, sorry, who is under stress, who can't, who is maybe not as capable of either A, identifying that that's the case and B, and or articulating it, you may only notice it when they hit the 90% threshold because then that's when they really notice it and it's when it really just starts to manifest. But at that point, it's it's kind of too late. Exactly. you now got to deal with the ramifications of that, it. That's exactly it, right. Yeah. If you catch, if you could catch it at the 20 or 25% range, then you can, you know, probably tamp it down, have a conversation, get it, you know, get it worked out. 
But yeah, so then I think it becomes really critical to understand what are the potential triggers and drivers for those behavioural, emotional swings, so you can start to yeah you know, remediate them within the environment. The triggers, well, I you know, think so, so you don't have to deal with the swing. Like you, you know, you you, you sort of hold the pendulum rather than letting it move. Well, um, I think part of the problem is is that translation problem. Uh, and I can give you, you know, examples from just my own IT side of the career. You know, when I see a problem with, you know, it's a piece of code, it's whatever, and, and you know, there's already a problem. You see it's going to go down the road and just become a bigger problem. Uh, and you go to, you know, whoever the appropriate project manager, manager, team lead, I mean, whoever the appropriate person is. I go in and say, there's a problem that we need to take care of. Because to me, it's a, it's a major problem. <laughs> I mean, it's either right or it's wrong. It's a, this is on the wrong side. We need to fix it. But I'm coming off like it's a, you know, three alarm fire. Whereas it could be just a minor issue. But I don't have that fine gradation to interpret yeah. that. So what ends up happening is, even though it's a more minor issue, I'm coming across, and with no stress at all, I'm coming across at a, declaring it essentially to be a 10, because that's what it is to me, when in the real world scale, no, it's something that is an issue we have to take care of, but it's not going to destroy the project or anything. It's just going to, you know, a little thing we got to fix. So I think that causes some of the problem of, uh, you don't have those mappings across, so... How do they understand when I say it's a, it's a big problem? Well, is that a big problem? They're thinking it's a 10, but they're looking at the problem going, it's a six. What the heck's, you know, what are you talking about? And that, of course, gets you into problems because, uh, you know, now you're being questioned as what your judgment is and all those kind of things. And uh, that, you know, as a knowledge worker, that's not a good place to be when people are, uh, you know, judging your judgment. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it's being able to get on the same page around calibrating on those sorts of things. But I was also just thinking about understanding that um, it could be uh, like a sensory environmental issue. Oh, I, I think that there's, uh, yeah, I've got a... And, and that as that builds, and if you're not aware that like the noise in the office could be creating stress, and as that stress builds, you won't see it until the person's hit the outer rim of that, you know, emotional state and at which time now you've all you can do is deal with the repercussions of it whereas if you can understand that that may be a stressor is how can you alleviate that in the first instance so internally within that person they're swinging a lot less and they're not getting out to that outer edge so they're not it's not manifesting and affecting them materially oh, no, no, I, so, I understand perfectly and uh, you know what you're saying is not just with you know people who are neurodiverse or autistic it's it's true of no, all no, humans no, right. right it's it's all humans absolutely right this ha this affects and, and as you said right it affects everybody it's the ability to have those minor gradations in between and the awareness of where you're at and i think we a lot of people may have the one to ten but lack the ability to identify where they're at. So they might know when I'm a one to three and a seven to 10, someone who's a lot more self-aware may be able to go one to 10 
and others will be one and ten. Right, right, exactly. And, uh, you, know? you know, it's just... And in between is, I'm not a one, I'm not a ten, I must be okay then. But I could be a nine, and one more thing, and boom, you know, it's over. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that, that's put so well. I don't think being autistic, and this is what I say, I think a lot of these things, I don't think is unique to being autistic. I think it's probably far more common and typical with autistic people, but it's not unique. I like to uh, tell neurotypicals that, you know what, while the things we do tend to bother you, uh, guess what? The stuff you do bugs the crap out of us too. Same, but same, nobody no. turns it around and looks at it from the autistic standpoint. I mean, what's it like being autistic and being in a room full of neurodiverse people who are all dealing with emotional crap? <laughs> I mean, that's annoying to me. <laughs> I, you know, it's like I'm left out. I can't even participate in the game. <laughs> yeah. But nobody thinks about it that they can be annoying as annoying to us as we are when we do, you know, some of the different traits that are common amongst us. Um, yeah, we, you know, I, I recognize some of them can be annoying, but some of the neurotypical ways are annoying too. Yeah. But that's, again, like you say, that's the, uh, the awareness and the perspective of saying neither one's right, but in each other's shoes, you could see why, you know, there's going to be a few uh, blisters and rubs on that shoe and on the other shoe, oh, I can see why there's a few blisters and rubs over there too. <laughs> yeah, that's right, isn't it? And yeah. I think that's a, that the solution is is simply uh, awareness. It's it's that understanding that people can be different, but that doesn't make them better or worse. It just means they're different. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And and it's getting helping people get past the um the the mental block where you don't have experience and exposure, and just been able to just just accept that things can be different. You don't have to understand it, just being aware and then choosing to accept that, I think, is a massive step. Because um, there's lots of things that I don't understand, but it's just accepting, okay, well, if, if, that's, if that's what it is, then fine. Like, I don't have to understand it. I just need to know that it is. Exactly. I mean, that's much like walk over to the wall and you flip the light switch and the lights come on. Do you need to understand the whole power grid, whether there are nuclear reactors, whether there's solar, whether there's wind, whether there's coal, whether there's gas, you know? Yeah, I mean, it. do you need to understand yeah. every one of those technologies to be able to go flip a light switch on? <laughs> or do you just need to know when you push this thing up, it gets bright in here, and when you push it down, it gets dark in here? Uh, yeah. And I think that's the, the thing, is people sometimes are trying too hard to understand the ununderstandable instead of just accepting, oh, that's just the way it is. Yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe maybe people do. Maybe we... And we well, and again, because the, the, the big issue I've seen is when it's trying... When a neurotypical is trying to understand somebody who's neurodiverse, they're explaining it to themselves in their own world. And unfortunately, it doesn't fit in their own world. <laughs> It'd be much better just to say, they're different. Here's the ways that they're different. I don't understand why they're different. I don't understand why they do it that way. But I, you know, I've got that understanding that when I flip this thing up, the lights turn on. I don't need to know much more about it. 
Mm-hmm. So instead of sitting down going, well, if I did that, then this is what I would have been thinking. So they must be thinking the same thing because that's what I'd be thinking if I said something like that. What a friggin' jerk that person is. And it was all just, you know, deduction into saying, well, if I said something that way, then this would be the state I'd be in. And, you know, as we talked about voice, uh, you know, it, yeah. it varies, yeah. again, just as much, you know, it's a human trait. But there's another area where, you know, it can throw somebody off and then they go and think about, oh, if I used that tone of voice on somebody, this is what I'd be meaning. Well, what if the person has no clue about their tone of voice and doesn't mean anything by it? <laughs> but they're probably far more mindful of the exact words they're using. Yes, and that gets you into all kinds of trouble because what I do, and most of the you know, people in the Asperger kind of range that I know do, is we use the first dictionary definition that is most accurate to what we want to say with no consideration of any emotional nuances that may be associated with that word. And then, of course, the person who reads it, if they are more tuned to, you know, the emotional sensibilities and, and social pieces, they're looking at the those pieces tied in and they're not looking at the definition They're They're looking at why would anybody say that? That's just so degrading or so, you know, dishonoring or fill in your blank when the reality was, no, it wasn't at all. That's not, there was no intention. That's not what they meant. Uh, That's how you interpret it just because that's the only way that you would have done that action. Yes, yes, and, and I think I think that's that's right. So it's kind of like it's, um, and I do, I do try to tell people like if if you feel that um, like there's never any, there's very very rarely if ever um, deliberate malice or um, any sort of disingenuous intent. Like if someone says something, you you do have to pretty much. If it's spoken or written, you've got to park the tone and just go with the words and it, it, just as they actually stand. And what, what what does it say, not what do you think it says? And what are they saying to you, not what do you think they're saying? Because there's generally, there is no sort of double entendre type of, you know, hidden meaning, you know, I'm going to be very clever with how I say this thing. I'm going to say one thing, but really I mean another, but and you understand what I'm saying. So I'm going to just tell you what I say. And the words that come out are, are the words in my head. There they are, whether it's on a page or in, 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 in out of my mouth, it's the same thing. And it's helping people understand, like, you've got to look beyond your own interpretation and take it at face value. No, you're, you're spot on on that one, is uh, just take the words, look it up in the dictionary, and accept what it says. D- don't, don't think more into it. I, I would say the one time that, uh, you know, we do have a tendency to maybe be trying to uh, use words in an interesting way is in our sense of humor, which gets us in trouble all the time. and in which case we actually mean the world's literally the words literally the way we're saying them and in our perspective and from a literal standpoint it actually is pretty funny but it can be very off-putting to somebody who doesn't recognize that we're being humorous in an extremely literal manner (laughs) yeah yeah but i think that um that 
that thing around language and the meaning of words is something that you need to flip as well um, and be mindful. I think when you're writing or communicating with someone, um, particularly autistic people at least anyway, it is it, it can be, I think some people at least will, will take what you're saying, as you say, like in the definition of that word, even if that's not, you meant to say something else or you're kind of, you're meaning something different, but if you said certain things and you say them in a certain way, you know, you join words together, like the sentence that you've said will have, a, could have a very different particular meaning for someone other than what you intended to say. Do you think that's No, I, I think that's reasonable. And I think that also uh, bumps into, you know, as you, we were talking earlier about cultures, it, there's also a cultural aspects about that of something that maybe to one audience it it would be fine, even if it is a little strange construction of the words and such, but to another audience it would not be fine because in their culture you really stepped over some norm in the way you expressed it. Because I'm thinking about talking in absolutes as an example. So in, in terms of, okay, um, Tim, you, you always do this thing. If I say, if I told you, 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 you always leave your shoes outside the door, I don't know, when you should be putting them in the cupboard or something. I, I would tell you about you 27 know. different times when I actually put them where they belong because, uh, you know, always, uh, obviously, and, if I can give you exceptions to that case, it's not always. <laughs> and, and, yes, right. And, and, I, and then it's that you get this issue with, well, the person who's saying it doesn't literally mean you always do it. It's what they're actually saying is you too often for my liking, you do this thing or you don't do this thing. And whereas the other person is getting stuck on, but no, I don't always do that. I, and, and maybe I also may be struggling then to try to remember the specific examples or times when I did do that because it's not something of meaningful importance to me. I don't record them. I don't remember them. Um, but I certainly know I don't always do that. That's so un such an unreasonable thing to say. And I've got this internal dialogue going on now about the injustice of always. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you've got this communication breakdown. I, I, I don't know. You know, I know one of the challenges I have, and I think this is, a, you know, it, it works along the same lines, is once I have lost, I guess, respect for somebody, uh, you know, they've obviously proven that they have no clue what they're talking about. They're, you know, they've been a jerk in, in a true sense, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, they've proven that they're actually incompetent in what they actually do. Uh, you know, you've worked with them a while and you've come to the conclusion that uh, they just are not the best person you've ever worked with that does that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, th there's, there's problems that come out of that area i don't know i'm trying to think how to how to explain it is it is it around you thinking about um uh, how you may give credit to any judgments or things that they do yes essentially you once you have given them the the stamp of incompetence <laughs> you've given them the incompetence stamp uh based on you know whatever the the input is uh essentially you've you've lost yeah. respect for them at that point, yeah. I, I personally have a hard time working or dealing with them. 
I mean, I, to, to me, it's like, just dismiss them. They're, they're useless. Uh, now, that's not necessarily a great way to go into the work world by any means. But, uh, yeah. On the other hand, that tends to be a lot of the reaction. And I think you've, you know, if you think about it, uh, just back through the number of, you know, different autistic people you've worked with, you've probably seen that happen. Once they lost respect for their, their manager, whatever, it just goes downhill immediately because they just essentially dismiss the person. Yeah, and I think, yes, and it can be a real trap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that point, you fall into the uh, violating the tribe rules. It doesn't, you know, I guess it, it falls into the military concept of uh, you. it's not whether you respect the person or not, you respect the rank they have. Well, yeah, and that, that's that tribe rule that you start, you talk about because you've still got a functional relationship you need to manage. Right, and that's where we tend to fall down is uh, we, we break the tribe rules and then uh, we don't do very well managing this functional relationship because it's not functional as far as we're concerned. What about take a person out of the equation and put a rule in its place? So um, I might say, well, when we do the, this particular activity, you need to do it in this certain way because that's the way we do it. Um, and, you know, we've got good reasons for doing it. And you may think or have found through experience that that's a stupid rule. Um, or in this instance, it's a, it, it is a stupid rule to apply. Do you think that that's a, a – you can have the same kind of uh, – challenges i guess in perceiving how you perceive yes i I would certainly say that uh yes if the rule has no apparent value uh, Mm -hmm. and nobody is willing to explain why there's value to it that you're just not seeing you know you're just told well this is just the way we do it so do it this way because this is how we do it well that's not an explanation that you know allows us to say oh that that makes sense i now can see you know, the line of reasoning behind that. Uh, you know, even if the reasoning isn't the way reasoning we have, if somebody explains it, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the tips I use in one of my sheets is, uh, you know, nobody likes when somebody else's uh, idea is used instead of yours. But we all do a lot better if somebody will explain why. But if I explain the rule to you and I explain why we do it that way, if you, if there's a disconnect in that rationale or logic, so you might not agree with that rule. You might think the the rationale for for doing a thing in a particular way is doesn't make sense. Is illogical? Is inefficient? Ineffective? Whatever it might be. Is that the same as having that incompetent stamp on the boss? Yeah, I, I would say at that point, if uh, if. If they can't justify the rule in a manner that makes sense to the person that has to follow the rule, and I'd say this is this falls all of humans. It doesn't. It's not just an autistic thing. It's just again, it's no, just no. more frequent, probably, or more obvious. Uh, but mm. yeah, I think uh, all of us. When you know how many how many rules, how many laws are there that you don't pay particularly a lot of attention to? I mean, well, there's plenty of them we don't pay attention to i mean you know how how frequently does the uh, speedometer in your car show a different number than the sign at the side that says it should yes um you know for me it's probably every time i get in the car right (laughs) (laughs) but again that that's the kind of thing of why why is it that you're speeding 
if they could have a justifiable reason that you followed the logic, then you would say, oh, well, you know, the reason is because if I go over this speed, I'm going to crash because of this turn is too tight that, you know, I can't make it at that speed. But if it's simply that, well, we're just going to put a 30 mile an hour sign because, uh, you know, we want to put a 30 mile an hour sign on this limited access highway because who knows why. Guess what? Just about everybody's going to speed their, you know, whatever off because it's totally illogical. Uh, there's actually some interesting studies about that, of how they can kind of figure out whether a speed limit's set correctly or not by how much people speed. And what they find is if people don't have, see any logical basis for the particular speed limit, they'll violate it like crazy. And same true, you know, same true with, uh, again, it's just like all these other things. Yeah, just add on more of it when you get into uh, you know, neurodiverse people. It's going to be a widest range. Yeah. There's going to be some that are sticklers and just stick to the rule because it's the rule 100%. Yes, yes, I mean, yes. way that more strongly true. than most people would. But on the opposite end, there's yes. going to be the ones that just totally dismiss it much quicker because it's just stupid and illogical. Yes. And it's because and, uh, I've... I've um, I've come across it a couple of times where um, where where there is a, I think maybe and maybe it's been a past experience with a particular ruler expectation that it didn't work or doesn't make sense, um, and therefore okay I've gonna give that rule that incompetent stamp, and I'm just gonna bypass it because it's just dumb. Right, D D and I've got a better way of doing it, so I'm just gonna do it my way. Um, and then that can create problems because it's, you know, you, it, it's sort of like going back to the tribal thing. It's not an interpersonal thing directly, but it's, well, you, you, you know, you're leaving your rubbish in the wrong spot and your rubbish should go down there and, or whatever it might be. You know, you, it, you're not following a, a, an expectation that everyone else thinks is right or understands to be the expectation. I mean, just because you, you don't see the logic in it, nobody can explain the logic in it. Uh, so you just say, that that's a stupid rule. So why follow it? Because it makes no sense. And if you add in the, you know, kind of lack of social, you know, awareness, well, not only does it not make sense and seem stupid to me, but I don't even notice that somebody else is upset that I didn't follow the rule anyways. <laughs> So that um, that idea of stamping a person or a rule <laughs> with the incompetent stamp is a good connection going back to the um, uh, that tribal connectivity or connectedness. Thinking. Exactly, and understanding or why. Okay, you might not agree with it. You might think it's dumb, but have a think about this connecting to tribe thing. And does that give you enough of a rationale to find a, a path forward other than what you might have been planning on doing? It, it, to me, I think it, it depends upon does the person have the recognition that they are different than how other people act? Now, if you have a diagnosis, yes. that doesn't even mean that you know that. All that means is that you know you're diagnosed with something. Uh, it, it takes... I don't know whether it's maturity, experience, um, thinking a different way. I, I don't know what it is. 
but it takes something to recognize that there is that difference in there. I mean, it's just like we were talking about, you know, the awareness factor being so important to get, yeah. you know, neurotypical people to understand the rest. Uh, and it's, it's yeah. There's definitely same a- thing. I mean, it's that, it's that awareness yep. factor of, are they aware that that group acts and functions differently and you're, you're running into violations of their norms? If so, then the tribal model works great because now at least you've got a model to say, okay, this is kind of how they function and work. I can mm. deal with it now, even though I don't agree with it. I don't understand why they do it. I just know that if you violate that tribal norm, there'll be mm. issues. But if you don't recognize they're different, then it doesn't matter that you treat them the tribal thing. They just don't see where it fits. <laughs> Yeah, so there there is a sort of a, a minimum level of self-awareness that's required. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd say in the level is the awareness that that you think in a totally different, think and process in a totally different manner. And not, well, not even think and process, also perceive. You perceive, think and process in a completely different manner than the other person, meaning you'll never understand exactly why they do what they do because you don't perceive you know think a process the same way but as long as you've got a model of how they work then you can work with the model and probably get the right result because the model is going to make you do the right thing even though you don't understand why it's the right thing so that goes back to that um it's about you don't need to understand the why it's just uh, understanding that there is that difference. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly, and that the difference is is not. Yeah, it goes both ways, doesn't it? Really? Exactly, it does go both ways, and that's again part of the issue. We yes, there's definitely an issue that neurotypicals aren't aware of, you know, what being neurodiverse and such is like. But just as much, people who are neurodiverse don't know what it's like being a neurotypical. I mean, I I honestly don't know what it's like to uh, you know go around worrying about what everybody else thinks. Not part of my world. Uh, you know, what they think is their problem, what they think. Uh, this is what I think, and this is what I'm going to do. I can't, I can't imagine yeah. the stress that that must put on somebody's life of always trying to figure out what else somebody's going to think about what you're going to do. Yeah, and it's a stress too many people really suffer from. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, nah. We hope that you've enjoyed another episode of Life in a Neurotypical Universe. Please, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Go take their phone and subscribe them. It will help us all out. If you want to know more about neurodiversity or have any questions for me, you can reach me at my website, timgoldstein.com, where I'll be more than glad to help you as best I can to navigate through the neurotypical universe.